0: There there is only one God, Yahweh is his name, he is God and there is no other. This is the fundamental Old Testament and New Testament teaching that there is only one God. There are three persons in that one God but there is only one God. This monotheism set Israel off from all the other nations of the world There was for a little moment one Egyptian pharaoh who believed in monotheism, but he was dispensed with very quickly. Nobody else was monotheistic in the ancient Middle Eastern world. And it was one of the characteristics of Israel that there was this insistence there is only one God. You see it taught, for example, in Isaiah 45, where in verse 18 it says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then in verse 21, and there is no other God besides me, there is none besides me. And then in verse 22, I am God, and there is no other. You'll notice in these quotes that we're talking of Yahweh, the Lord in capital letters, uppercase letters, that is the one God of all the world is the God whose name is Yahweh. In the Old Testament, we don't translate the word Yahweh, the name. We just put the word in uppercase, Lord, to mean uh, the Yahweh is there in the Hebrew text. So there is only one God and his name is Yahweh and all other gods that the nations worship are false gods. Notice also in these quotes, the power of the negative. And there is no other. Um, it's powerful to declare that there is, I am God, but it's even more powerful to say the negative, and there is no other. There is none besides me. This is a powerful statement in logic, for it's possible, you see, for Yahweh to be God, and there are lots of other gods as well. But that's not what's being said. What is being said is, Yahweh is God, and there are no other gods. There is no other God. Isaiah makes it perfectly clear that not only is Yahweh God, but there are no other gods. There's no other God. Yahweh and Yahweh alone is God. And then we come to Psalm 82. If you'll turn to the Bibles to Psalm 82. And verse 1, it's page 586. Verse 1, the Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Who are they? There are no other gods. Who are they? Who are these gods? Where do they come from? What are they doing? How can they exist if there is no other god than Yahweh? Is this a case of the Bible contradicting itself? Is this psalm a mistake? Jesus quotes this psalm In John chapter 10, verse 34, where he's accused of blasphemy, making himself equal with God. He said, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? You see, Jesus uses this very verse to justify his position and to say there are within the scriptures more gods than God. So let's look at Psalm 82 and find out what it's teaching. You'll notice that there are four parties involved in the psalm. Uh, There's Asaph, there's God, there are the gods, and there are the weak and needy. We turn to look at them in turn. Firstly Asaph. Now there are 12 psalms of Asaph. Asaph was one of the Levitical servants and singers appointed by David to serve in the temple. In this psalm he is the narrator in verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment and he is the one who makes the plea for justice right at the end in verse 8, when he calls upon God to arise and judge the earth. Verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Secondly, the psalm is a psalm of God. For God is recorded in speaking in verses 2 to 7. And he addresses the gods of the divine council, rebuking them and challenging them in verses 2 to 4, and judging and condemning them in verses 6 and 7. The third and fourth parties, the gods and the weak and needy, don't speak. The third party is the gods. They're spoken to throughout the psalm. Well, at least in verses 2 to 4 and verses 6 to 7, and they're spoken about in verse 5. They are then the you of the psalm, the ones to whom God is speaking in rebuke and in judgment. And finally, there's the weak and needy, the ones that god's, the gods have failed to care for in verses 3 and 4, who are seen to be lost in God's description of them in verse 5, if it's that's the description of them in verse 5. They're not, they're not all humans or all humanity, but the weak, the vulnerable. Uh, classically, the fatherless and the widows, the weak, afflicted, and depressed. Now, the problem to resolve in the psalm concerns the gods. Not just because it doesn't seem it to fit into our systematic theology of monotheism or with the rest of the scriptures, but also because the psalm is so much about them. They're the ones that God addresses and they're the ones failing the weak and needy. So... Who are they and what should they do? Well, let's start with the most obvious question for Bible readers. Who are the gods? In one sense, we're not told because we should know and or because we don't need to know, but we're not told who they are. But we're also given some hints as to who they are. The psalm talks of the divine counsel and God taking his place in the midst of the gods. So this sounds like the the governing council of the universe, or something of that character. Furthermore, the psalm talks of them as rulers and judges, ruling or judging in the affairs of humanity. So verse 2, their error fails, their error lies in their failure to do the job. And that job has to do with verse 2, judging, and verse 3, judging righteously, and Verse 4, rescuing and delivering. That's what they should be doing. That's what they're not doing. And so that tells us something of who they are in terms of being the rulers and judges of the world. But finally in verses 6 to 7, God speaks of them as the sons of the Most High. All of them are that. And the sons of the Most High, though, are like men, mortal. They will die And so they're all under the judgment of God, they're all under the judgment of death. But I guess our question is not so much who are the gods as what are the gods? Now there are several options that are available that people have come up with to answer that question. Some people see these as human rulers, the governments of the world, set up by God and under his authority to rule the world on his behalf. This view is good in that it's true of what we know of the governments of the world according to the Bible. For God establishes all authority in all the governments in the world. And it solves the riddle of how can there be only one God and yet this psalm talks of the others as gods. But it has problems. Why does he call the governors of the world gods if he's really talking about the kings and rulers of the world? And why is it called the divine council or the congregations of the gods? And why are they in verse 7 like men if they are men? So other people see them as being supernatural beings. Now, this does better justice to the words of the psalm itself, but it does give us this problem. How come there are many gods? Does it mean that verse 1 is a counsel of God, a divine counsel in which gods take their place? The the gods are, are, verse 7, mortal like humans, but they're not humans, they are the gods. Can there be gods like this? Well, biblically, yes. Because of the meaning of the word God. For the word God means a ruler possibly, often, usually, a supernatural ruler. And as such, the word God is applied to the devil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we read him being called the God of this age. Or again, in John chapter 12 and John chapter 14, Jesus called him the ruler of this world. And in Ephesians 2, Paul called him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. That is, there are spiritual beings in the universe who do rule and reign over the affairs of the universe. And they're the ones, for example, in Ephesians 6, the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers with whom we do spiritual warfare so that there are spiritual rulers in the universe that affect the life here in this world and with whom we have to deal. These, because they are rulers, are called gods, even though we recognise that they're not really God. For they are all under his control, they are all creatures, they will all die like men, and their claims and their powers are limited and deceptive. So Paul can write to the Corinthians and say we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one for even if there are so-called gods whether in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords there are many gods there are many lords the devil is a god of this world. That's not to say that he is God or that he rivals God or that he's not under the power of God or that he cannot die and be judged. So what we need changing is not the psalm but our simplistic monotheism. For the Bible does speak of supernatural rulers in personal and powerful terms as existing and influencing the world And humans not that the psalm is about who or what they are the psalm is really about what these gods should do and how they're failing and what will happen to them for they have failed in their responsibility they've been given responsibility by God but have not done it they've not brought justice but rather have judged unjustly showing partiality to the wicked They've not cared for the weak and fatherless or maintained the rights of the afflicted. They've not rescued the weak and needy. They've not enlightened them or given them any understanding. This is the character of the psalm. It's background to understanding that the powers and principalities in the heavenly realms share in the wickedness of the earthly realms of this world and share in the judgment of death that is coming to man. There is a spiritual realm of personal beings who rule in the affairs of this world, but this spiritual realm of heavenly beings is corrupted like the human world is corrupted and will die under the judgment of God as the human world will die under the judgment of God. So although they're gods in God's assembly... They're not showing justice, which is what they should be doing, but rather sharing in the supernatural rebellion against God by failing to keep his ways or ruling and judging as he would and as he does. And this will have implications for human judges as well, laying out the standards that they should be concerned for. If the spiritual being should be concerned for these, how much more should those... Who are placed in authority in our parliaments and in our courts and our police show these kinds of concerns. but it's basically about the powers and principalities, the spiritual rulers of the present age, the angelic beings, if you like to call them that. and in particular, it's showing us that these are answerable to God, for it is his counsel in which they sit it is his charge that they must answer. It is his character of justice and mercy that they have failed to live up to. It's him to whom they must give account, for he is the one who pronounces judgment in verse 7, they will all die like men. It's therefore he who is God of gods and Lord of lords and King of kings and ruler of rulers, so that there is ultimately only one God Monotheism is right. There is only one God to whom all the gods of this world must give answer. And it's therefore a fitting conclusion to this psalm that Asaph calls out to God, the judge of all the earth, who is going to inherit the nations, to bring his judgment on. So come with me to the New Testament quotation of this psalm in John's Gospel, page 1069, 1069. Here we see the rulers of Israel rejecting Jesus. In chapter 9, Jesus has healed a man who was born blind. But the rulers of the Jews then demonstrated themselves to be the blind oppressors, for they were more blind than the man born blind. Remember, there's none so blind as those who will not see. And their spiritual blindness led them into oppression and persecution. In chapter 10, Jesus is teaching. A teaching that is dividing the Jews. And the curing of the blind man becomes critical in his teaching. Look at chapter 10, verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The words that so divided the Jews like that were Jesus' claims to be the good shepherd in chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. Built into these words was a reference back to Ezekiel 34. For Ezekiel promised the coming of the good shepherd, The coming of the day when God would shepherd his own people. The coming of the day when God would not only shepherd his own people, but have his son David rule over his own people as the shepherd. When Jesus is calling himself the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34, he's also attacking the leadership. Because the reason God is going to shepherd his people, the reason that God sends his Messiah to shepherd the people is because the leaders of God's people are not doing the right job. They are not caring for the sheep. They are only looking after themselves. It's no wonder then that Jesus' contemporaries, especially the leaders, took offence at what he was saying because he was alluding to the very passage which attacked the leaders of Israel. And he claimed to be the saviour coming to rule in their place. Jesus claimed to be what all the other leaders fail to be. The shepherd who so cares for the sheep that he'll lay down his life for them. It was a claim to be the Messiah, the Christ. Though he doesn't use the word there. So they asked him if he was the Christ. And he professed in verse 25. Down to chapter 10 verse 25. You see, 24, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That is what tipped them over the edge. For the Jews, verse 31, pick up stones to stone him. I and the Father are one. The Jews heard in that blasphemy. The Jews heard in that Jesus declaring himself to be equal to God. The Jews heard in that the claim that he was saying he was God. That's what tips them over the edge. But there's nothing blasphemous in the phrase son of God. Israel itself was the firstborn son of God. The king of Israel was always known as the son of God. The Messiah, the Christ, was going to be God's son. You see, the phrase son of God in the Old Testament equals not God the son, that's not what it equals. The son of God in the Old Testament means a human who relates rightly with God as his father for a moment just about our own New Testament understanding Uh, if you are in Christ Jesus you're a son of God I'm a son of God that doesn't mean for a moment that I'm God the son I I don't have any difficulty understanding I'm a son of God but I'm not God I'm not God the son that is a very different thing I understand the difference I hope you do not only about me but about yourself as well something terrible about people who think they're God the son just because they're the son of God. And the Jewish definition of the word God had become too tight, for they had forgotten that there are many gods and many lords, not just false gods in the sense that they are things that people worship, but there are real gods in the sense of supernatural rulers in the council of the gods, like Psalm 82 referred to. They are not the God. They are not the one God. They're not the ruler over all the gods, but the supernatural beings are there. Ultimately, there is only one God over all these gods, and that one God is the only eternal, all-powerful ruler, Yahweh. The rest? Well, the rest are like humans. They're mortal. They'll die. So... Jesus points out the unbiblical nature of the Jews' belief by quoting this psalm, Psalm 82. Quoting verse 6 here, in verse 34 to 36, he says, Is it not written in your law? Verse 36. Sorry, I've got I'm just, or here, aren't I? verse 34 rather. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world you're blaspheming because I say I am the son of God? If there is one God who is the only spiritual supernatural ruler of the universe and there are no others, none under his authority, none in existence, no angels, no devil, no... Then for Jesus to put himself above humanity must equate him with God. Because there is only one. But if there are these other beings of a spiritual supernatural nature who rule in this world, when Jesus identifies himself as a son of God, That is in no way saying that he is blaspheming the one true God. Mind you, the Jews actually were right. For they could hear in the way in which this man spoke of his father and the father and that he was one with the father, that he was actually not just saying he was the son of God, but he is actually saying he was God the son. He was saying more than he was the Christ. He was saying not just that I'm the son of God but God was his father from all eternity. For the gospel of Jesus is not about a man becoming the son of God but about God the son becoming the son of God. And here's a little confusion for us Christians in our Bible reading you see. God the Son became the man Jesus. And as the man Jesus, he became the Christ. That is the Son of God. And so you see, God the Son became the Son of God. No wonder we get a little confused here at this point. No wonder the Jews were a little confused at this point too. How can it be blasphemous to call yourself the Son of God? It can't be. How can it be blasphemous to call God your father? It can't be. But yet the way Jesus did it sounds blasphemous. Unless he was God. See, here's the great news for Christians. That God is the ruler over all the other gods. That's the great news of Psalm 82. That in the council of the divine beings, the supernatural beings, the angels, the spirits, whatever it is, in the council of the gods, God is the one who rules over all and to whom they must give answer. And they have no permanency in life. They, like humans, will die under the judgment of God. And furthermore, Christ was raised up to sit at God's right hand over all powers, all authorities, and names, and rules, and rulers. Not only in this age, but the age to come. Not only in this world, but in heaven as well. He he has been raised up to rule over all the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. We may be in a spiritual warfare, as indeed we are, but our king is the king of kings. Our Lord is the Lord of lords our God is the God of gods and therefore we have nothing ultimately to fear from them for they are answerable to the one who is our father and so the psalm is right the psalmist asaph when he concludes his psalm verse 82 and the last psalm 82 and the last verse arise o god judge the earth For you shall inherit the nations. We have nothing to fear when our God is the God in the council of the gods. We have nothing to fear when our Lord Jesus Christ has risen up to sit at the right hand of his Father, to have all powers and all authorities placed under his feet. For he is indeed the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, God of gods and ruler of the universe. And so the devils, the demons, the angels, the whatever it is that you may from time to time be afraid of, be not afraid of them. For our God and our Lord rule over all of them. They are all answerable to him and they great and powerful as they may appear now are actually like humans mortal they will die under the judgment of god let's pray heavenly father we thank and praise you for the lord jesus christ for his lordship over life and over death over the powers and principalities of this present world and over the powers and principalities in the heavenly realms We thank and praise you, Father, that you are indeed the God of all gods, that you rule over them all and you hold them all into account. And we pray, Father, that you would use them to bring about your good purposes as the servants of your people who are to be saved and that you would bring judgment on those who overstep their place, their realm, and lead us in deceit and lies like the devil himself that we pray, Father, that the day of judgment will come when all those that stand in opposition to you will die like men and when you and your Son will reign alone with us forever. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Andrew.